0: delight in our hearts and that we would hear from you. That's what we always long for, Father, that we would hear from you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and thank you for your word. Be with us now as we open it together. We love you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 verses 57 through 79 is going to be our focus. We're going to be looking at Zachariah's song. Um, I call it a song. It's it's referred to in the word as a prophecy. Um, but I, I want you to kind of understand what's going on here. We also call Mary's Magnificat, which is in the same chapter, a song as well. And there's a, a an understanding here that when the Lord speaks out of the mouth of people, or when something is bubbled forth out of the heart of a person, that that is a song. That this is a song that is issuing from the heart of somebody who has been touched by the Word of God. So, here we are reading Zechariah's song. Let's start in verse 57 where we get the context. And the song picks up in verse 68. Let's read together. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name, and they made signs to his father to inqu- inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So as we come to this, this song... Uh, we want to get some context as to what's going on here. So here's a little bit of an intro. And in, uh, Zechariah re- was a religiously faithful man. You can see this in verses eight and nine of chapter one, when it says, "Now while he was serving, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense." His customary religious duty is what's being emphasized there. Zechariah was a man who was faithfully attending to the worship of God. This is important for us because sometimes we can get weary of faithfully attending to the worship of God. We can become weary of it. We can get tired. We can we can say we want weeks off. We can we can kind of hold back our worship and and I want you to note God shows up in Zechariah's faithful attendance to the Word of God. He's faithfully attending the worship of God. He's performing his religious duty. And that religious duty in modern times seems to have garnered with it a negative association. We tend to think of religion as something negative. Uh, You've heard it argued over and over. It's relationship, not religion. You've You've heard people kind of spurn the idea of religion. And I tell you, religion is not a bad thing. Religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. And so attending to religious ceremony and religious duty is not a bad thing. Zechariah was doing his religious duty. God shows up to faithful religious people who are in disciplined practice. It's one thing to note here that God answers regular and constant prayer. God answers the regular religious practices of his people, Now, when this is happening in the Gospel of Luke, there's been about 400 years where there has not been a, a prophet. Where there have been quiet voices, there have been small voices and activities going on, but there has not effectively been scriptural prophet for about 400 years. From Malachi to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's about a 400-year gap. So, we can can draw this application. That the consistent, faithful, religious practice, eventually, God answers. God answers this. This has been a faithful, religious practice. And then, we see uh, the announcement there of grace. He tells them that John, he's going to name his kid John. Zachariah's going to have a kid, you're going to name him John. Zachariah naturally, as a Jewish man, would have thought, I'm going to name my kid after me. But the announcement is John, which means grace. You're going to name him Grace. He's going to come. He's going to give grace. He's going to preach grace. This is pivotal to understand because Zechariah serves as a priest of the law. He serves as a priest of the law, and he's going to have a son named Grace. Grace. Who's going to preach people, preach to people, that one is coming who is going to free them from the law. And he's going to give them grace. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. Zechariah has been laboring in religious fealty as a priest of the law of God. And John comes. Grace comes. The son of the, son of the law comes and brings grace grace. He will turn hearts to God. In this this testimony of who's coming, it says there in verses 14 through 17, uh, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him and in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is going to bring grace to the people. He's going to bring grace. He's going to prepare the way for Jesus bringing grace as the as the message. And then we have Zechariah's response there in verse 18. And if you see what Zechariah says, he looks at the angel, he panics a little bit, and he says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you good news. So Zechariah is confronted with this response from the angel of, it's almost abrasive. I am Gabriel. I speak for God. And I came to bring you good news. So that's kind of how that is supposed to read. It's a, re- it's a reproving remark. And we know it's reproving because Zechariah is not allowed to talk after this. Until he says grace. Until he confesses grace, he's not allowed to speak. Which is such a beautiful picture of those who are under the law versus those under grace. Zechariah, a man under the law, who is a priest of the law, cannot speak until he is willing to confess that he needs the grace of God. His name is John. And then all of a sudden he's able to speak. The grace of God moving here in Zechariah. And through Zechariah that we would see this. So the result... Zachariah responds incredulously, how shall I know this? Or how can this, like, what is this? And note, note some of the things here. If, if you're wanting to apply the, uh, the response of Zechariah and really think about how you can, you can respond better than he did or respond differently than he did, compare his response to Mary's response. Mary's response is how can this be? how can this be? Like, this is miraculous. This is amazing. How can this be? And her response is born up in out of her heart is a shock and awe at the wonder and power of God. Zechariah's response is, how shall I know this? Prove it, is what Zechariah says. How shall I know this? Prove it. If you want to respond to the Lord without having to go through a period of silence in his presence, without having to be reproved, if you want to respond to the Lord without those things, then my encouragement would be to respond the way Mary does. In awe of what God is going to do, and just throw your hands up and go, you got it. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh and conquered death. sting. We sang it. That's Mary's magnificent right there. That, that song we sang. Oh, my soul magnifies the Lord. Right? This, is, this is the response of one who is surrendered to God, whereas the one who is the priest of the law asks, prove it. And God says, quiet. And then does. And then proves it. But if you want to, just by way of side application, if you want to see it, you want to watch God work, then stand back and watch God work. Now, uh, Zach, just four, four things to remember as we move to this next, as we move to his song in the first part of Luke. Zachariah means the Lord remembers. Zachariah also doubts uh, the Lord and is made silent in verse 20. God met him in his religious observation. That's an important thing to note, that religious observation, God meets him there. He meets him in his religious observation. And then God meets ordinary men in ordinary faithfulness is the, perhaps the greatest application we can draw from Zechariah in the first half of Luke. Is he meets ordinary people in ordinary religious observation, ordinary activities. Zechariah is going about his normal duties as a priest and God meets him in those duties you go about your normal worship at church and God meets you in that worship. You go about your normal quiet time reading, private devotional study time, and God meets you in that. If you go about your normal prayer life, God meets you in that. God meets you in those places. But it might be 400 years. It might be a while. Remember, Isaac prays for his wife to have a child. For something like 20 years? Praise for her? Remember that the prophets prayed for years that God would answer them. Remember Habakkuk, how long will you let justice, injustice reign, O Lord? And and the Lord says, don't worry, I'm going to answer. I'm going to bring somebody worse. And then Habakkuk goes, what? And he says, don't worry, there's somebody worse behind them. But after that, I will bring redemption. And Habakkuk is forced to say, I will wait and watch and wait upon the Lord. We consistently follow the Lord in faithfulness and quiet obedience to His Word because we know one day He will answer. Because we know one day all things will be set right. And that's the substance of Zechariah's Prophecy, Zechariah's song. So let's go over to verse 57 and dive into the main part of our text this morning. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Now just get the time frame right. Zechariah has been quiet since the announcement of her pregnancy. He has not been able to speak since the announcement of her pregnancy. Everybody knows he's mute now. Everybody knows he can't talk. He's a priest, which means this gets really awkward really fast, right? Because priests are supposed to be able to talk. They're counselors. They're they're pastors. They do what I do. They, they talk with people. They engage with people. They're supposed to be able to speak, and Zachariah can't talk. So he's been performing his duties. He's been... Working as a priest. He's been trying to do this. He's having to write stuff down. He's probably carrying some sort of tablet that he can write on. He's got something by way of communication. But everybody knows he can't speak. Everybody knows he's been silent. Everybody also knows that Israel has not heard from the Lord for a while. That there's been very little miraculous signs. Oh, you had things like the Maccabean Rebellion in that time period. You had prophets like Honi. Uh, which is a religious, uh, a, a Jewish prophet that existed somewhere between—I uh, can't remember the date exactly—somewhere between 300 BC and zero. He's he's in that time period, and he's the one who draws a circle on the ground and refuses to leave the circle. It's a it's a legend. We don't know if it's true or not. But there's you had men like that. You had these these things that happened where people would lead in congregation. You had you had small. Uh, risings of faith. You had these things, but, but in general, there was kind of a silence in Israel. There was kind of a quietness in Israel. And here, Zechariah models that. He looks just like it. He gets silenced by God because he questions the Messiah. He questions the advent of grace. How shall I know this? And he questions it, and God says, you'll be silent until I show you. And so he's quiet. And he hasn't said anything. And he's been years of religious fealty in silence and waiting. Zechariah is a picture of Israel. He's silenced until grace comes. He's got years of silence. And then there's fear that comes upon his neighbors. When uh, Let's just get the story. And, and on the eighth day, they came to be circumcised. They came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to, him to be called. Now, I just think that's a funny moment. Just imagine you've got a baby. The baby has been circumcised. And this is now the official naming. You're standing before the priest. He's got the pen and paper. What are you gonna, this is the birth certificate. What, is, what are you going to name this kid? They're about to log it in. And Zachariah is standing there, proud father. And Elizabeth, is mother, holding the baby, he's going to be named John. And everybody goes, whoa, 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 lady. Look, woman, you don't get to name the kid. This is his kid. That's what happened. That's what, this this is his kid. You don't get to name, now, I don't know, modern times, I didn't get to name my, my daughters. I didn't. I got to, I got to have input. I got to have a shot, you know, I got to have like a, that sounds good, honey. Like, that's what. That's how that was. I, 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 I insisted on the naming, of, uh, on some of the naming of the son, but even that, she totally, totally led in the naming department. So this is, this is foreign to us as Americans, right? I assume that that's a normal American experience, that that there's an engagement, yeah, some of the, some of the husbands, yeah, um, this, this is a normal American experience in that, uh, you know, it's not often when it's like, a woman doesn't get a say, and. But here in Israel, this would have been weird. His name is John. And then they're like, wait a second. Zechariah, this is kid. is his name. He's naming this boy is his. And so they go to him. And just imagine the fury. Because I want you to understand what's going on in Zechariah's heart. Zechariah has been told, you're going to be quiet until I do this. And God named this kid Grace. God sent grace, and everybody in the room wants to insist on the law. God sent John, named him John, said the message is going to be one of grace. The message is going to be a call to repent and receive the grace of Jesus. And everybody in the room wants it to stay at, Zachary- stay at the status quo. That's what's going on in Zachariah's heart. Because he's finally getting it. He's finally understanding. He's finally grasping grace. He's finally grasping grace. And so he says, His name is John. His name is John. And they made signs. They asked him. And he asked for a tablet to write on. He says, His name is John. And they all wondered. They all wonder right after he writes that. It's not, he doesn't start speaking. It's not that he starts speaking. It's that they say it. He says, he writes on there, his name is John. And then they all are surprised. They're like, oh, wow, his name is John. Okay, the woman wasn't lying, which I think is, again, hysterical. There's, she was, okay, so this is his name. She's holding him. I told you, I told, you know, and then, and then John, Zacharias got the little sign up and is like, his name is John, right? And they're, we together, team. So that, they all get shocked. Like, wow, he named his kid Grace. That's all right. And then immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. When grace is manifest in the hearts of the people of God, fear comes on the neighbor. When God speaks, fear comes on everybody. When you obey the Lord, fear comes on the people around you. Fear. And that fear means fear. Something unsettling. Something nerve wracking. This happens all the time in Scripture, it happens over and over and over. When Israel walks through the land and they come through a certain place and God provides for them, fear comes on all the nations. When they are going from one place to another and they have to go... This miraculous route, fear comes on everybody. When Joshua crosses the Jordan, fear comes on everybody in the land. When they walk around Jericho, fear comes upon everybody in the land. When Isaiah stands up and tells Hezekiah to not be afraid, fear comes upon the Assyrians. Everybody is afraid when the people of God, in obedience to God, follow God's word. I would even testify, modern times, if you read... Uh, the book Jesus Freaks or Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read in history where when Christians obey, even if they lose their life for it, even if they're tortured, fear comes upon everybody in the room. Fear comes upon everybody around them. And I mean fear. Not simply awe. Not simply uh, reverential respect. But fear as in an unsettled, uncomfortable Attitude. This is what you see when you are faithful to the Lord, and other people who are around you are not faithful to the Lord, and they start to get very uncomfortable being around you. That's fear. <clears throat> they begin to fear. So fear comes upon everybody. Zechariah confesses grace. His name is John, and he fear comes upon everybody. Just a short application. When we focus on this life and our condition, we often find that our tongues are tied, like Zechariah. We often find that our tongues get tied, like Zechariah, and we can't say anything. But when we focus on what God has planned and what God has said, we will find our tongues loosed and we can speak. And in the speaking, we will call others to repent and they will fear the Lord. One way or another, they will either fear and submit to him in grace, or they will fear in anger and fury. So, the world will see and know when we are in step with God. The world will see and know when we are in step with God. Now, let's look at the song of Zechariah, verses 60, 67, really, 67 through uh, 79, um, And this is the the outline that we're going to kind of follow here. God's activity, the prophetic past, which is his first portion, 68 through 75. John the Baptist's role in verses 76 and 77. And then finally, verses 78 and 79, the light has come and what this means for us. So, uh, this is in three parts. And to begin, uh, we need to understand that this first part in verse 66 through 67 and all who heard it laid, their, laid up in their hearts, saying, what then, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, uh, when we obey the Lord and we follow the Lord, fear comes upon everybody, and everybody ends up asking this question. This is a natural question that starts to happen. They ask this question, and Zechariah, the father, in verse uh, 67, responds, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He prophesied, or he sang, or he bubbled forth. But note, when he speaks, it starts with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit originates this song of worship. It originates with the Holy Spirit. He's the origin of the praise. So, think about that for a second. The Holy Spirit of God praises God. God praises God. God sings praises to and for and about Himself. That, that could trouble someone. So I just want to take a moment to think a little deeply about this. The question is, God praising God, God worshiping God, is that some sort of self-exalted self-exaltation in the in the terms that we think of it. And the answer obviously is no, because I wouldn't bring it up if it was, it'd be really weird. Um, no, this this is this is appropriate. And I want you to understand why it's appropriate. You see, if God worshiped anything other than God, he would cease to be God. If God worshiped anything other than himself, then that thing which he worshiped would be higher than him. That thing which he worshipped would be immediately ascribed higher to him because he has the power to put things where they are. So if God worshipped anything other than God, then he would cease to be God by definition. The most high, exalted one, who's the only one worthy of worship. So God, therefore, must praise himself by nature, He praises Himself. He exalts His own name to the highest place. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing because, again, if God exalted anything else above Himself, then He would be submitting or putting Himself underneath something lesser. Something lesser. We don't want something lesser as God. We want God Himself as God. So, if you're following, the praises of the Lord originate with a proper understanding of who the Lord is, and God himself models this by praising himself. The Holy Spirit originates the praise here, and then he praises God. Now, the word prophecy is the in Hebrew is the word navi, right? This is the... Prophet Navim, which is bubble, literally means to bubble forth or to overflow. That's what the Hebrew word means. That's what I think the Hebrew, that's what I think the uh, authors of the New Testament had in mind when they used the term prophecy. They're talking about bubbling forth or overflowing with the word of God, bursting into song. Now, I've never actually lived inside a musical, but I've been in some of them, and that's what happens in musicals, right? You've seen this? You've all seen a musical where somebody's walking along and they trip and then they sing an ode to the rock, you know? <laughs> or they, you know, they're, they're dancing and they're singing and, and then they sing about, you know, the stars and the moons and all these things. And, they, and you're, it's really weird. And if you did that in real life, it would be funny but bizarre. And people wouldn't be around you for very long. So they, uh, musicals, kind of operate in this sense that prophecy The prophecy is kind of this way, where when somebody walks in and they they get filled with the Spirit of God and they just bubble forth with prophecy. They just launch into song. Now, the Word of God is often best described as song. The Word of God is often best described as song because so much of it is poetry. So much of it flows in a way that just seems to come out of this outflow of spiritual integration. So much of it just bursts forth from the soul, right? Even C.S. Lewis uh, hypothesizes that when God was creating, he sang things into existence. That when it says he spoke, it should probably be rendered, he sang these things into existence. He sang, let there be light, and there was light. Like this this beautiful concept that God is a singing God who bubbles forth out of his own love for himself, creation. This is is a beautiful sense. And so Zechariah here bubbles forth in prophecy. And prophecy in the New Testament and in the Old Testament points not simply forward or back. It does not simply point forward or backward. Rather, it points up. It always points up. The point of prophecies are always to reveal something of God. The point of prophecies are always to reveal something of God. This this prophecy here is of the Lord, of who He is. It it points forward indeed, and it points backward indeed, and it points to the present indeed in Zechariah's life, but it also points up. It points up. Let's see here what he says. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. So he starts there with I hope you noticed I emphasize the has. He has done this. He starts with what we call the prophetic past, which is a statement about present and future that is couched in past. So we can learn something right away from the Lord here, that when it's couched in the prophetic past, uh, and he says he has visited and he has redeemed, we can learn something here that this is certain. When things are couched in prophetic past language, that this is certain. I want you to think about this. The psalmist could write, he has rescued me from all my enemies. Over and over in the psalms, he could write that. He could write that he, he has done these things because it is so certain that God is going to answer that the psalmist and the prophet could speak about it as if God has already done it. As if God has already come. Because his, his promises are that Sure. So when you pray to the Lord, think about that. When you pray to the Lord, think about how powerful this is. That you can, you get answered by Him before it is, ever comes about. This is called prophetic past. We see it all throughout Scripture. That God says He has redeemed I have redeemed Israel and have taken them to myself. I have given them a new heart. He says these things in prophetic past, knowing that his promises are so certain that they will be accomplished. Indeed, you have been redeemed. You have been made holy. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. These are all terms used in the New Testament. Those are all terms that mean you are holy and clean before the Lord now. And yet we know, we know that He is cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We know that He is cleansing us daily, that we are becoming conformed to His image daily, that there is a constant renewal of spirit in Colossians chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 4 and, and all these texts that we can think of where it says, you are being Sanctified, You are being made holy. And at the same time, you are holy before the Lord. You are a holy priesthood before Him. We know these things, but we know that His promise to sanctify and cleanse us is so certain that it is done. And we can rest in the confidence that He has accomplished the work even though we still walk this life and still grow and still all the things about us are true because He has said they are true. And we know that we can have confidence in this. This is beautiful. Note that He has visited. The word visited here means looked upon. And I love that term. In Exodus, He says the same thing. He says, I have seen their affliction and I have heard their cry from the heavens. He, he looks upon His people. He knows your struggles. He knows your troubles. He knows the things that weigh you down. He has redeemed. He has redeemed them. He has paid the bill for them. And they are his people. Zechariah, being of Israel, must have thought, he must have thought Israel. He must have thought national Israel. His people. That must have been in the back of his head. But we know that Gentiles get grafted in to this kingdom and that his people encompasses all who would have faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 and 12 says but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once and for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So Jesus has secured redemption for those who trust in Him. We have security of Him, and it's done. It's prophetic past. It's finished. It's done completely. Then we have the next phrase. So first, He visited and redeemed His people there in verse 66. And in verse 69, he has raised up a horn for us, a horn of salvation. Now, what is a horn, right? You've got a couple different options here. An animal horn, a trumpet, and as a battle symbol, right? Do I have the fourth one there? Okay. Um, we've got animal horn and a trumpet and a battle symbol. Let's think first about the animal horn, right? This is, this is the idea of uh, the picture of strength. that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, and in Daniel 8. Those are the three kind of big passages where this is used. That's uh, Deuteronomy 33, 17, Psalm 22, 1, and Daniel 8. Meaning, this is a, the animal horn is a symbol of strength. It's like when a bull butts the ground with its horn, and then looks at you, you know to run away. I used to uh, work on a horse farm, and the guy that I worked for had two bulls, and they were in his back pasture, and I would... Occasionally, I have to mow his back pasture. And when I was mowing it, these bulls would get angry. And one time, one of the bulls started butting the grounds with its horns. And my pastor, who saw it, said, Run! And I went, What? And he said, Get off the lawnmower and run! And I, uh, you know, obedient, hopped off, ran off, jumped over the fence. And the bull charged that lawnmower and knocked the thing on its side. And I went to my pastor. My, the guy I worked for was also my pastor. He was a farmer, horse farmer, and pastor. and It's a fun discussion for another time. But he, uh, he said, run. I got off the lawnmower, ran. This cow knocked it over. I went to David. I said, David, what do, what do we do? And he said, you let him calm down. And I said, you can't calm him down? He was like, it's a bull. He's got horns. I don't want to get hurt. That's the that's thing. These, these horns were what he was worried about. He was worried that these horns would gouge and, and hurt. And this is a big animal. Animals that have horns are usually pretty big. And they're mean. And they have horns for a reason. God put them on there for a reason. These are strong animals. And they can be ferocious. So horns here. The horn of salvation is the symbol of strength and power from the Lord. That he would come... And save you. It's this image of power and Lord. Second, ver- second image of a horn here is the trumpet, right? The idea of a trumpet. Trumpets are blown in Exodus, thir- in Exodus 19 in particular. Tru- trumpets are blown in order to call the people to God. Think about that. Took a shofar horn or some sort of ram horn and blew through it to make this noise. Ah, you know, they make this noise. And it caused everybody to come to the Lord. It was a way of calling them to come to Him. So when Moses got ready to worship, he would blow this horn, or Aaron and the priests would blow these horns, and the people would know, oh, time to go to worship. And they would come before the Lord. This was a way of calling people to the Lord. When the horn was blown, they were permitted to approach God. So Zechariah says there's a horn of salvation. We're permitted to approach God now. In the law, we were not permitted to approach God without this. God has raised up a horn of salvation. And then finally, a battle symbol. We see it constantly in the scripture, raised in battle. The horn is blown in battle. Jericho, they walk around the wall, they blow the horns, the walls fall down. War happens, and I that blow the horns, and war happens, and the Psalms that blow the horns against their enemies, and war happens. This is raised in battle. So, God here has raised a horn, and it's got this threefold meaning one, it is strong enough to save, one, it calls you to Himself, allows you access to God, and then three, raises battle. It's raised in battle against evil and sin and wickedness. God has raised up a horn. He is not silent. He is not standing back. He is at war against sin and evil. And now we see the victory come. He has raised a horn against his enemies. He has raised them up for the house. And then we've got this phrase, in the house of the king. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of Of his servant David. He's raised a horn for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus is the horn of salvation from the line of David. From the line of David, Jesus is the horn of salvation. And he goes on and he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, he spoke. Through the prophets of old, there's a couple of scriptures that you can grab hold of here. Uh, Acts chapter one verse sixteen and uh, verse chapter three verse eighteen and twenty one, and then chapter four verse twenty five all mention the same thing. But First Peter chapter one verse 10 and, ten and 11 says it this way concerning salvation concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring. What person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets of old have always spoken this message. This is critical for us to understand. That the message did not change. The message has always been the same. The prophets of old have always taught that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. Indeed, His name is the Lord saves. And we see it all throughout Scripture. Even in the names God provides for Himself. Yahweh, Makodesh Kim, the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who makes you clean, who sanctifies you, who makes you holy. I am the Lord who saves. I am the Lord who heals. I am the Lord who brings righteousness. I am the Lord, your righteousness. I am the Lord, your defender. All these phrases and words and and names of God we see throughout Scripture testify to the truth that He has come, that He is coming in Jesus in the Old Testament, that He has come as Jesus in the New Testament, and we get salvation because He has always, always provided it this way. This has always been the message that Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who will crush that as a snake and set all things right. And He is salvation. And trusting in Him is the way to salvation, He spoke through his prophets long ago. He's the seed of the woman. He's the descendant of David. He is the new Moses. He is the better Moses. He is the better uh, priest. He is the greater high priest. He is king. And in the Old Testament, they searched diligently to find out who he was. And he spoke through the prophets about victory over the enemy. He spoke about victory over the enemy. This is an interesting thought. What what does it mean, victory over the enemies? And what would Zechariah have thought when he said he's going to give us victory over our enemies, that we should be saved from our enemies, and the hand of all who hate us? Now, as a Jewish priest, Zechariah might have had in mind the Roman occupation. That might have been on his brain. It might have been something he thought of. Uh, If he didn't think about it, it wouldn't take long for him to think about it, as he could go to any place where they were having coffee or tea or something and find old men arguing about politics. It's easy to do. Even today, that has not changed. That's been a, a reality since the dawn of time. Men seem to congregate and talk about politics over some hot drink at some point in some place, and you can find them in every culture. And so in the Jewish culture, this would be no different. He would have gone and heard and thought, and in the back of his brain, maybe Zechariah was thinking Rome. Maybe. Maybe he was thinking Rome. Maybe he was thinking sin. Maybe he was thinking sin, the sin of the people. He's a priest. It's highly likely that he could have been thinking about sin. Maybe he was thinking about evil in general. Maybe he was thinking about evil in general. So what's the answer? What's... I wouldn't dismiss any any one of them. Zechariah was probably thinking about all three of them at some level. So like any good theological question, the answer to this one is yes. Which one was he thinking about? Yes. He was thinking about all of them. Indeed, we have this phrase here. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible says that the enemy of man... And the enemy of the people of God is sins. That's who they need rescue from. Sin. They need rescue from sin. So while Zechariah may have had in his mind Rome, he may have had in his mind national powers, he may have had in his mind enemies who come against the people of God as people, as other people, the Bible seems to equate this phrase of salvation and victory over the enemies with sin and death. The enemy is sin and death. And it's important for us to grasp because throughout the New Testament, what we're going to see is a shift. What you see is a shift. As you read from the beginning of the Gospels to the end of the letters, you see a shift in thinking where the Jewish people seem to think. They seem to think that they are at odds with other people. And then as you go through, you see Peter gets the announcement that you, shouldn't, that you should go to the Gentiles. Paul is sent to the Gentiles directly. And, and they're asked about, well, what's the extent to which we're sent to them? How much are they the people of God? And at the end of the letters, you've got them going, people aren't your enemy. Nations aren't your enemy. Your enemy is sin and death. And those are people you're here to rescue. Those are the people here, you're here to share the gospel with and rescue. Oh, that we as a church, as a people of God, would get this. That the that the frustrating person who's opposite you that is testing your faith and challenging you and angry at you for having faith, and they're loaded with fear because they have seen your confession of grace and they are hateful towards you, they are not your enemy. They are people in desperate need of salvation. They are people in desperate need of salvation. So we see that they saved from sins. That this is a prophecy about being saved from sins. It's also a prophecy about restoration of God's favor. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So Zacharias says, This has been the promise. First, he says, it's the word of the prophets from the beginning that we would have victory over sin. And then he says, it's also the promise of God to the people of God from the beginning, from Abraham. That God would restore and remember his covenant. Remember this. God does not ever forget his covenant promises. He will always fulfill them. He does not ever forget his covenant promises. He will always fulfill them. He remembers his covenant. Leviticus 26, 40 and 40, 40, 40, 44, I'm sorry, 40 through 42 clarifies this that God will always remember his covenant. Now, real quickly, let's fly through this part here where we discuss the result, right? We've got this uh, resulting in here in verse 74 and following Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So here's the result of this, this praise to the Lord, this, this prophetic past prophecy past tense. Here's the, here's the result. That we might serve without fear. Having been redeemed and having been rescued, we might serve without fear. Fear of what? Fear of punishment, fear of sin and death. Fear of everything. We might serve him without fear, fear of enemies and fear of death. We serve Jesus Christ, the living Lord, who has given us life, and we have life in him no matter what. We serve him in joy and in freedom. Second, that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness. And we mentioned this earlier that. Part of God's delight for you and His will for you is that you would be sanctified. It is the will of God that you would be sanctified. There are several places in Scripture. There, actually, there are very few places in Scripture where God says, This is my will, and then colon, and tells you what it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 is one of them. This is my will. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, your holiness, that you would serve the Lord in holiness And righteousness, this is God's will for you. And then finally, all of our days, not just some of them, not just when it's convenient, all of them, not only for a time, but all of them, that you would serve him all of our days. And here's the reason, because serving him is living. Serving him is living. To serve God is to be alive. To not serve him is to hold your breath. And pass out. To serve him is to be alive. You serve him, you are living and delighting in him. Living and delighting in him. And then we see John the Baptist's role here in verse 76 through 77. Let's read this. It says And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. And the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. So, John the Baptist is to give knowledge of salvation. And that knowledge is to stem from mercy. The knowledge of salvation does not stem from legalistic requirement. But rather stems from mercy. It comes from the mercy of God. Knowledge of, of salvation comes from the mercy of God. Knowledge of the law leads you to understand you are desperate for knowledge of salvation. The law is a schoolmaster intended to point us to our need for Christ. We are to be knowledgeable of the law of sin and death because it's supposed to point us to Jesus. And John, the grace that God gives, John, the prophet of grace, says or is said of him that he is to give people knowledge of salvation. So, John, the Baptist message of repentance is one of forgiveness and salvation that stems from mercy, stems from mercy. And then finally, here, the last part and the thing that we echo ourselves, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This light has come. The light has come. And that light is Jesus Christ. The light of the world. And you can know Him. And you can see Him. And you can be with Him. And you can, He will walk with you. And He will lead you on the path everlasting. He is a good and merciful King. And this is His doing. He is Lord over all. And He is the light of the world. The light has come into the world. And our job is to sing about the light. We are to become like Zechariah once we have professed grace to sing and praise him for the light that has come.